Ghost History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we bring you some weird comics history every other week on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. You can get us uh, through iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and Word on the Street. Um, this Street pe- Preaches. That's right. <laughs> uh, this is part four of our Underground Comics series, finally uh, concluding this one that has kind of lingered around way too long, mainly because of my uh, ineffectual ability. Is that a word? I'm not sure. But uh, last we week... We fall prey to the uh, planning fallacy, where we uh, don't think things are going to take quite as long as they do, and then they wind up taking much longer. They end up taking an entire day sometimes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, the you know, I apologize for that, but this will finally wrap up the talk about that. Last week, we did run uh, a kind of an old... Uh, two episodes stitched together from our time when we were still embedded in the Weird Science podcast uh, about... Uh, Paradox Press and Piranha Press, not in that order, actually in the other order. Yes. Um, hope you guys enjoyed that. That is related to what we're going to talk about today, but that isn't technically, I think, part of this four-part Underground Comics series. So this will be, uh, you know, annoying to uh, compile later on. You know, you'll have, <laughs> you know, for the comics collectors, the numbering being out of order is definitely going to annoy you. Just pretend it's early issues of Spawn. Exactly. Oh, that was a fill-in. Last last issue we had to get someone in to do a fill-in. We had the dreaded deadline doom. Now we're back on. Now we're back on schedule. So, uh, just to give a recap of what we have talked about in the past three episodes of this series, uh, initially underground comics. They were crude pornographic pamphlets called Tijuana Bibles, and these were distributed. And this is probably is the only true underground uh, distribution where they would be in venues like billiards halls and off-track betting parlors and nefarious bars like that, you know. Um, then in uh, 1952, Harvey Kurtzman Mad Magazine debuted and other publications later on of his. They would inspire an entire generation of comic creators in America to look beyond, essentially to look beyond, you know, heroic tropes like westerns and uh, you know, army comics and superheroes and, and see that there was another type of storytelling that you could do through comics. Uh, a burgeoning zine scene in college newspapers in the 50s and early 60s, they provided the perfect vehicle for the earliest underground comics, at least the artists, to get their work out there to the public. But in 1968, Robert Crumb produced Zap Comics number one, and this led off, uh, kicked off an explosion of underground comics that lasted until about 1974. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of them, and we detailed a lot of the issues in the second episode, yeah. uh, and didn't even come didn't close even, to naming all yeah. of them. But <laughs> yeah, scratch the surface. There were a lot and out there, folks. Um, but in 1974, there were new obscenity laws that kind of killed the scene. Uh, these new, these comics have been distributed through head shops and through universities, so not wanting to get uh, hit with obscenity laws. Certainly, yeah. They kind of dropped them, but um, then the underground comic sort of uh, reinvented itself. Um, they kind of split off into two types of normally black and white comics, although that would also change over time. Uh, there were autobiographical comics like American Splendor, and then just kind of a better quality comic, usually fantasy. Uh, two of them that we went through were Elf, Elf Quest and Cerebus. There were some others, though, uh, later on. In the 1980s and early 90s, Art Spiegelman's Raw Magazine and then Robert Crumb's Weirdo Comics, they were kind of vehicles for independent writers and illustrators uh, and some of his old pals from the underground comic scene. And in 1985, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics, they flipped the industry on its ear 
and fomented rampant speculation, and the comics industry was probably more lucrative than it ever was and ever will be. Uh, that, you know, we don't know for sure about the second part, but we're pretty sure about the first part. Sure. Um, but then the bubble popped around 1993, right? You'd say. Yep. Uh, in fact, we could almost probably pinpoint the date if we looked at the Comic-Con <laughs> numbers. <we> <laughs> uh, the industry collapsed. Uh, you know, comic stores went from thousands across the country to hundreds and within a couple of years. Surely, Chris, this has to be the real end of underground comics, right? Hmm. Well, before we go any further, let's uh, do what we usually do and look to the past. All right. <laughs> we're not going to go into the 90s just yet. First, we're going to talk about heavy metal. Uh, it's a uh, it was a magazine, an oversized magazine. Uh, you know, we had the relaxing of the comics code and the underground comics explosion. We had a growing direct market that started uh, with that Phil Suling in the mid to late 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, began pulling American comics out of the, you know, you know, DC comics aren't just for kids. Yeah, you know? right, right. uh, This was uh, becoming more mature. Uh, kids who were reading them as children were in college, and they uh, demanded something a little bit more mature. Uh, around 1976, publisher uh, Leonard Mogul uh, was uh, he was in Paris to kick off a uh, French edition of uh, the National Lampoon magazine. I'd, like, I'd just was... like to point out that uh, being a publisher with the last name Mogul is pretty great. That is awesome. <laughs> it's not spelt right, but, no, uh, but, but it, we, it's... We'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> While he was there, he discovered a uh, French sci-fi uh, fantasy magazine called Metal Hurlant, which uh, translates to Screaming Metal, and that uh, that debuted in uh, 1975. The uh, That magazine would feature work by uh, Jean, Gerard, Jean Gerard, that we know better as Mobius, and uh, Milo Minara, who we know better as the guy who drew that porny cover that yeah, people didn't like the Spider Woman cover. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, among many others. Mm. Uh, Mogul licensed the magazine for America, and they renamed it Heavy Metal. Uh, they ran comics from Metal Herlon, translated into English. This was a uh, thick four-color magazine on glossy paper, and uh, was either eighty to ninety-six pages for about five bucks. Uh, back when I, I think you were buying this back in the mid-eighties, right? That's right. In fact, I, I have a, a brief story that I bought an issue of Heavy Metal probably in nineteen eighty-seven. Brought it to school mm-hmm. because, uh, and and I truly did buy it for um, the article. The, the, yeah, no, I really did buy it for the artwork, <laughs> but let me tell you, the nudity did not hurt. Uh, but yes. I brought it to school and uh, I got busted for it. They were they felt I had brought pornography to school, which arguably I had. Kind but of. Uh, they they did let me. They took the comic away, but gave it back to me, or the magazine, and gave it back to me at the end of the day. Um, but that was uh, me doing that as a young whatever I was, twelve years old at the time, buying a magazine <laughs> I shouldn't have been allowed to. Uh, yeah, imagine that. Imagine that today. <laughs> I know, really. <laughs> I don't know how how could a kid get his hand on hands on nudity I'm today? Smart. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, heavy metal they were lushly illustrated or often painted comics. Uh, nothing. Frank Frazetta had a lot of that, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, wow. Frank Frazetta was Beautiful. in there. Um, just a ton ton of great artists from uh, Spain and France and and people that weren't doing what you would see in American comics. You know. Yeah. Uh, typically, American comics were just considered flat. Two-dimensional, you know what I mean? CMYK, colored, you know, and here we were seeing really artistic comics and still comics, word balloons, panels, yeah. uh, the whole Almost nine. Almost like a coffee table version of comics. And, and it's interesting because now, that, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, 
so what you know like uh, <laughs> you know King Kingdom Come uh you know Marvels uh I, yeah. that's too Alex but there's so many lushly illustrated hell I mean uh Green Arrow by uh what's his name for Ferrara he does a kind of digital watercolor it, I mean it looks every every page looks like a painting you could frame um but that wasn't the case back then you know you they oh, all yeah. comics just looked kind of flat um Did the initial owners so, what what remember the animated movie Oh yeah, metal? that happened in I think seventy nine or eighty. That that was a that was one of those things that we always wanted to. It was always like an appointment viewing <laughs> when yeah. that was when we found out that was either going to be on like Sci Fi Channel in the nineties or whatever, or we try to rent it every so often because it was actually, just so different. In the early days of VHS, what's weird is that didn't come out on VHS. I guess as soon as we would have liked it to. Essentially, I, yeah. I, by the late eighties, I think maybe eighty nine, eighty eight, it showed up. But I mean, that was something where people were like, "Yeah, we got it," because it was kind of hard to hard to come by. Hard to come by. It, it didn't have a huge run, even when it was in the theaters. So it was sort of like a a movie that was talked about for a long time. It was it was almost like an underground thing. It yeah. was, uh, and and I think like we're saying, like a lot of the recent viewer listeners here uh, probably have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to things like rarity. <laughs> you know, it's nothing, like yeah, it's like, nothing oh, is rare like, these days. It's like, oh, I can YouTube that. It's like, no, you couldn't do that then. <laughs> you yeah. know, you you were sometimes lucky to get like a eighth or ninth generation VHS or something where you could barely make the figures out. Which is how I saw it at first. Yep. I think I saw it in college, as a matter of fact, for the first time. So that was even after it was released. I don't remember actually, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was now, later than when it came out. Yeah. I, I'm sure that now you could buy it on iTunes even if you wanted to get a legit copy or whatever. <laughs> like could. nothing is rare, you know, it's uh, it's nope. crazy. But this this was a different time. But anyway, that's so getting a little bit off track. Um <laughs> going back to the magazine, it's early days. That's its initial owners, HM Communications Incorporated, uh ran it for 136 issues over sixteen volumes until nineteen ninety two when it was sold to Kevin Eastman. And it still does come out I think four times a year. I think it's uh, oh yeah. Um I haven't looked at it in a long time. I know right now Grant Morrison is the editor-in-chief, uh, mm-hmm. which means it's probably really weird. But more importantly, this exposed American audiences to a kind of comics that they hadn't really seen uh, as much. It inspired countless creators over a pretty long span of time. And most importantly, comics publishers realized there was a market here. American comics publishers, that is. Uh, mainstream publishers wanted to get in on the act, and perhaps rethinking that failed comics book project with Dennis Kitchen we talked about uh, two episodes back, Marvel started up a line called Epic. Mm-hmm. In 1980, Marvel experimented with their own version of heavy metal magazine called Epic Illustrated. Uh, it would run from spring 1980 to February 1986 and publish 34 issues. Featured creator-owned work, often with a mature theme, or at least not bound by the Comics Code Authority. Uh, and Boobs a plenty is how I yes, recall right. that book. <laughs> yes. Uh, launched Jim Starlin's Dread, sorry, launched Jim Starlin's Dreadstar in a series of stories titled The Metamorphosis Odyssey, and it had stories from creators such as Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm. Featured art from Frank Frazetta, the brothers Hildebrandt, Boris Vallejo, and Mobius. And it even ran Dave Sims Cerebus in a strip called Young Cerebus. Mm-hmm. Even a Marvel-owned bit in John Byrne's unfinished The Last Galactus story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, in uh, 1982, Epic was actually spun off into its own line, uh, creator-owned line at uh, at Marvel Comics. Uh, Famously, Jim Shooter offered the gig of running the operation to Archie Goodwin, who didn't take it seriously and turned it down uh, (laughs) until uh, Shooter offered it to Bill Mantle. 
Bill Mantlow, who accepted, and then suddenly Archie wanted his imprint back. Isn't that always the way? You know? It <laughs> is. <laughs> uh, now, the epic line would woo many of the bigger names on the independent scene, like uh, Sergio Aragonis, from, who, did, who did Gru, mm-hmm. as well as uh, Wendy and Richard Pini, who did ElfQuest. Uh, reportedly, at first, Aragonis was a bit hesitant to sign the dotted line and decided to first publish Gru through uh, independent press uh, uh, Pacific Comics first. Yeah. Which uh, appears to have vexed Jim Shooter a little bit. Oh, I'm not surprised. Uh, <laughs> although Pacific Comics, those they did some Kirby work, didn't they? Destroyer, they did. They did Destroyer they did. Duck, so they were sort of uh-huh. players in the game to some Certainly. extent. And they were also distributors as well. Right. Now, uh, the epic line was rumored to have been started because uh, word got around that Frank Miller was shopping around his story called Ronan. Uh, he ultimately went with uh, DC for that, and that was published in 1983. Uh, Shooter still holds firm to this day that he would have gotten a better deal at Marvel because that's, of course, what he would say. Of course. <laughs> Now, Epic would continue publishing creator-owned work as well as Marvel-owned stories, such as uh, Silver Surfer Parable, which was uh, written by Stan Lee with art by uh, our friend uh, Jean Girard. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also Electra Assassin, which was uh, written by Frank Miller, and I, I, at least the covers were Bill Sienkiewicz. And uh, Havoc Wolverine Meltdown, which I believe was by the Simonsons, and I think Sienkiewicz had some of that, too. Now, that uh, went until 1994, with only uh, the Akira manga, transla- manga translations uh, taking the line into early 1996. When oh, it, uh, I, didn't know the I didn't know they did that through Epic. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. And they were, uh, they, were they had the, it's weird, when we, when we talked about uh, Piranha Press, uh, the Akira translations had almost the same garish kind of cover. Oh, yeah. It's like a bold, like a bolt hot, co- like a hot color, like a hot pink uh, for half of it, it was weird stuff. Very nineties, uh, early nineties, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, much like the Marvel Icon line of today, this allowed many of Marvel's top tier talent an opportunity to publish their own creator-owned work, still under the umbrella of Marvel. Uh, we got a couple of examples here. Uh, we got Chris Claremont and John Bolton, who did Black Dragon. Uh, J.M. DeMatteis did uh, Moonshadow, which would uh, that would actually be reprinted the following decade through Vertigo. Hmm. Uh, same story. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, uh, Steve Gerber's uh, seminal work, Void Indigo, <laughs> which uh, it's one of those things I could talk about for 100 years and still not say a thing because it's just a very weird thing. Uh, Steve Englehart did Coyote. Uh, Bill Sienkiewicz did uh, Stray Toasters, which would uh, later on be reprinted by Graffiti Designs in a very, very heavy trade paperback. Uh, this thing, it's like each each piece of paper in this thing weighs a half pound. I've seen it, and it, it seems yeah. pretty thick, too, like a little overly thick. Yeah, it's it's. I've got it uh, in the library, and it actually like it's like the one book that makes the thing the the, the shelf bow. Right? <laughs> yeah, <I was> saying, <laughs> you got to put that uh, on well, either end. That's a problem. You have you know? to, yes, or lay it longwise. <laughs> um, uh, we also had Jim Stalin, who uh, he did the aforementioned Dreadstar, which would uh, actually it would do about twenty some odd issues at Epic, and then leave to go to First Comics, and it would continue its numbering and the uh, ongoing narrative. So issue twenty four was Marvel, and issue twenty five was First. Um, a little bit later on, Peter David would take over the writing chores and would also uh, produce a Dreadstar miniseries for Malibu, featuring Vanth Vanth Dreadstar's daughter. Uh, this is this whole thing is so interesting because it shows. First of all, it's something I don't think you would see today at all with all the exclusive, no. with all the exclusive contracts and uh, you know they might be okay with Marvel or DC might be okay with you writing a book at Image, but they're not okay with you moving your properties around and stuff. 
but yeah. also kind of how mercenary it was at the time, you know, like, yeah, uh, it was a hot playing field. And I think a lot of these mm -hmm. creators were jockeying for position to get, you know, a couple of bucks extra here or maybe, you know, whatever, leverage that against another book that they're going to do later on. Uh, a lot of, lot of, a lot of footy, footsie going on here. And it's, <laughs> it's interesting to read about. Yeah, especially, you know, launching out of the idea that Ronan was going to be a thing. I mean, yep. it's like, oh, we got to get Frank Miller under this umbrella right now. Um, now, uh, continuing into the 90s for Epic, they took licensed work. Uh, they had a line from Clive Barker, and they also had William Shatner's Tech War, which was garbage. Um, <laughs> other uh, notable creator-owned stuff uh, included uh, Mark Schultz's uh, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, which was, I think, Zeno something... I don't remember what it was on. Uh, it's it's Zeno something. Okay. <laughs> That's what it was on the independent scene. Uh, as well as the uh, Mobius library, like the Airtight Garage, the Endless Prince, stuff right. like that. Um, Marvel even tried to do, through Epic, sort of like a, a joined universe. Um, in 1988, they launched a line of four comics called Shadow Line. Which was a, it was a mature take on the shared universe of superheroes. It features such luminary titles as Doctor Zero, Powerline, and Saint George. Oh God! And people talk about this all the time, Chris. Right? You, I, I know. <laughs> the, the movie, the movie trilogy is on the cover. <laughs> That's right. The Shadow Line. No one forgot this. <laughs> now this was an Archie Goodwin idea, which was canned pretty quick due to low sales. Uh, they are actually Marvel-owned characters. Uh, two of which made cameos in the recent uh, 2015 version of Secret Wars, and also uh, the 1990s uh, Marvel horror character Terror Incorporated, which is that green guy with the whiskers. Right. He like wears a fedora and has whiskers. Uh, mm -hmm. He first appeared in an issue of Saint George. Oh, that's nice. They could get Craig squeeze some more out of those guys. I can go on the back of his trading card. <laughs> so. Uh... Epic came back for a cup of coffee in 2003, and we'll cover that in more depth during an episode about Epic. Probably yeah. might be Epic, a full Epic and Vertigo type thing, but uh, yeah, we're definitely going to dive deeper into this topic. Uh, we can say here that it launched with a miniseries called Trouble, written by Mark Millar, with art from the Dodsons, a story that, if it's in continuity, chronicles May Parker's teenage sexy time and retcon Sarah's Peter Parker's biological mother. So, yeah, we'll see if that ever comes back. Uh, in 1991, Raw Magazine, that was Art Spiegelman's uh, magazine, uh, showcasing a lot of new artists that ceased publications. And in the same year, Robert Crumb and Aileen Kaminsky Crumb moved with their daughter Sophie to southern France. And uh, Crumb actually traded a bunch of his early sketchbooks for the house and mm -hmm. probably a bundle of cash, I'm guessing. But yeah, that's pretty cool. But you can get a bunch of sketchbooks you made in the '60s, you know, 30 years prior, and get a house out of it. Get some real estate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's just just labor, buddy. Uh, and you could actually, I think, Fanographics uh, reproduces has done the series of the sketchbooks, so you can see exactly what was, you know, you could get a house for the south of France for these days mm. if you want to do that. <laughs> and then uh, the the comics that that Crumb had started, Weirdo Comics. That stopped publication in 1993, as as we were talking about, there was that big industry collapse. So, like I said, this must be the very end of any kind of underground or independent uh, comic, right? Yes. Except that there was a comic line launched by DC called Vertigo. It was officially launched in early 93, and it moved several of DC Comics' mature readers' line of books into the imprint, which included Doom Patrol... Shade the Changing Man, Sandman, Animal Man, Hellblazer, and Swamp Thing. Uh, although all those pre-Vertigo series reprints and trade collections, they're done under the Vertigo branding. And you often, through this show or from uh, our Cosmic Treadmill show, you often hear me saying to Chris, 
was that vertigo at the time you know like i, <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> to me uh, you know it's been so long i i lump all that stuff into vertigo just because that's how it's been reprinted but yep uh i do remember yeah this is whatever it was not your parents dc or nonsense that they were saying yeah. at the time or not for kids like you said anymore uh that was all DC at the first, but Vertigo would become a haven for creator-owned works. Uh, lured some amazing talent along the way. That Grant Morrison, uh, he did The Invisibles and We Three, which are both worth reading. I especially like We Three. Brian Azzarello did A Hundred Bullets. Garth Ennis uh, did uh, Preacher. That was Steve Dillon, too, right on that? Yeah. Um, which now is a show on AMC that is pretty popular. Bill Willingham uh, did Fables, which only just concluded two years ago, I think. And that has a few shows that are uh, that stole the uh, that stole the concept. Well, they on, stole uh, the concept. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I know. heard that in uh, they actually they announced that at one of the comic cons, and they said we'll answer all questions except if they have to do with fables. Yeah, there was a show I can't remember it. It was on Fox. I'm going to say four or five years ago. That was just an absolute ripoff of of the like whole Grimm idea. Grim or Ever that might have been it. That like might that, that yeah. was it. Yes, Grim Fair. And it was, you know they kind of had a horror thing on it, but it was you know we bring these uh, fairy tales are living people, which is essentially In the, real the, world, yep. the thing about fable. So it was it was such a direct ripoff. It was it was almost quaint. But yeah. to my knowledge, <laughs> fables itself uh, is not has not been an option. But what do I know? You talk talk to Bill Willingham if you want to know. Yes. Uh, Jason Aaron did a book, Scalped, which is uh, r- really good, very well mm-hmm. respected. Uh, he writes Thor now, I believe, and maybe a couple other things for Marvel. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn did Why the Last Man, um, another pretty good story that ends really strong. Uh, and Brian K. Vaughn, we know him from Lost, and uh, he did Buffy. Did he, he? He's done so much stuff on television. He's a... Lightly, yeah. Yeah, he's he's a he's a big character. Uh, also has done written a lot of comics in the past, and then of course Warren Ellis on Trans Metropolitan, and there were even more than this. Uh, yeah. This list could go on and on. Uh, in 2010, it was announced that Vertigo would be creator owned only, and the DC properties would be reabsorbed into the mainstream universe uh, with mixed results and fan reaction. But now we've got Young Animal, which has kind of that early vertigo feel to it you know mm-hmm. kind of feels the same way and it, and it does fold in some dc characters so uh it's it's bringing back that same sense of fun i think that the early sandman and you know Certainly. swamp thing books have and stuff so it's it's cool to see yeah well they're kind of on the fringe but they're still there's still a place for them yeah i like um, it yeah, me too, me too. Uh, we also have another uh, thing that launched in the early 90s. That was Image Comics. Uh, and extremely brief, because I'm sure we have an Image episode under, uh, you know, on the horizon somewhere. Uh, in the early 1990s, seven of Marvel's top artists, reportedly led by Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld, they were tired of working on characters that they didn't own or get a decent enough cut on merchandise and T-shirt sales for. They decided to break out on their own. Image Comics would basically have two rules. One, Image would not own the creator's work. The creator would, the creator would, and the second one is no Image partner would interfere creatively or financially with any other partner's work. Image itself would own no intellectual property except the company's trademarks. That would be its name and its logo. Uh, the logo was designed by the current vice president of Vertigo and integrated publishing at DC Comics, Hank Canals. Uh, now, we'll be covering Image, the Marvel exodus, and rampant speculation that followed in much greater depth, hopefully sometime in the near future. Mm. But uh, for completionist's sake, those seven founders, they are Todd McFarlane, who went from Spider-Man to Spawn, Rob Liefeld, who went from X-Force to Youngblood. 
And, so, and when... some would say it wasn't that big of a transition for him. But anyway, <laughs> that's enough editorializing. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, Jim Lee went from X-Men to Wildcats, uh, which which is was similar as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, Eric Lawson went from Spider-Man to Savage Dragon, which might have been the biggest departure. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Will Spatasio went from Punisher to eventually Wetworks. Uh, Jim Valentino went from Guardians of the Galaxy to Shadowhawk, and Mark Silvestri went from Wolverine to Cyberforce. And this whole the the Image comic story itself is a fascinating thing, going all through, even up to the, the present, present day, day, where Image is a pretty is the biggest player uh, besides yeah. DC and Marvel, routinely getting like ten percent of the market share. Um, so it's it's a fascinating story, but for the purposes of this series it's just important to say that this was another venue for independent artists and in fact to maintain their independence entirely and still get mainstream distribution so uh this is sort of where how it had shifted underground comics or the aesthetic had been absorbed into the mainstream to some extent and was and had a place uh to get seen um Mm -hmm. Now, some people, though, they were fully absorbed into the mainstream, and they still uh, wanted to do their own thing independently. One of the biggest names in that in, in comics ever and in this uh, topic is Steve Ditko. Uh, you may have heard that name. He was born uh, November 2nd, 1927 in John, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a guy definitely deserving of a full biography, and uh, I feel I will probably, we will probably get to it, although there is sort of... <laughs> Not a lot to say, uh, you know what I mean? Like you, it's yeah. funny because you, you could, we could spend probably uh, two straight hours just reading off the books he's worked on. Um, but as far as like his life, he's a very reclusive guy. He doesn't give interviews. He doesn't talk. He he prefers to let his work speak for itself. Um, so there's not a whole lot to say about him as far as like anecdote, anecdotally. Um, no, no, they tried doing that uh, with that that. Uh... Jonathan Ross. Jonathan Ross tried and, and in search of Ditko, and it was it, it was a lot of anecdotes, but nothing nothing really about Ditko. Just recently, uh, I, one of these websites, I think it might have been Comics Alliance, although I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. But they did. They had someone went up because he, you know, people know his address. He he lives and works in a studio right up near Lincoln Center in New York City. Yeah. Um, they went up there, they knocked on his door. It actually has his name, S. Ditko, right big on the door, so you don't have to wonder. Uh, and a, you know, 80-year-old man came to the door and said, no, I don't want to talk to you, and that was it. Closed the door on him. So it, and, and I bet he gets a few of those a week, if not more, you oh, know. And I, and I got to say, you know, Chris, uh, I, I would, you know, I would run to whatever was going to publish a new Steve Ditko interview today. You know, I I would, you know, if it's on the web or if I had to pay, you know, for a magazine, I would not, I would not delay. I I would love to hear what this guy thinks about anything in 2016 going soon into 2017. But at the same time, I feel like he's made it clear. He doesn't, you know, I feel like if he wants to talk, he'll, he'll call you. Uh, leave the guy alone. Exactly. Uh, you know what I mean? Like uh, maybe this is my attitude because I hate when people drop by. You could be you could be my friend for for thirty years. <laughs> if you drop by, I'm gonna fucking I'll I'll tell you off like you never heard in your life. But uh, uh, you know, that's my my first reaction to the uh, doorbell ringing. It's like, oh, who is that? who is this asshole? You know what I mean? It's like it, it's if it's not Ed McMahon with a uh, sweep house thing, I, I don't want to talk to him. But uh, 
yeah, my my attitude with that is like I, he's made it abundantly clear that he doesn't yeah. want to talk to the press. Leave him, leave yeah. him be. You leave know what I mean. Be, yeah. And if he and if he gets a feeling that he wants to talk to somebody, I'm sure he has the the contacts and connections. You know, yeah. I, I mean, he'll get into you know the biggest publication overnight. I mean, people are waiting. Exactly. So anyway, or, or he can sign up for Twitter. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that would be... I, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be hilarious, wouldn't it? I, I know, like a few years ago, um, people were uh, like, people would send him if you send him like a handwritten note, uh-huh. he would sometimes reply. Yeah, it, with a handwritten note, which is awesome. But when that got out online, everybody started doing it. That's right. So uh, it became, you know, it became like, oh well, no, this avenue is now closed as well. Also, and, so, and his his replies got a little more acerbic as a result over time, yeah. uh, which I can understand. I mean, and what was funny too is though he, he it's not like he would reply to every fan mail. It no, seems no, selective. No. He would just decide uh, to do it one once or twice. And to, and the little the few anecdotal things I do know about Steve Ditko, to be honest with you, people always describe him as a very affable friendly guy the kind of guy sure. that would buy little presents for like the secretarial pool or we had we we read that we we in the charlton episodes remember he Wait, was leave a little comic strip up on the yeah wall. every week he yeah. had like a, a comic strip kind of a, a somewhat of a gag yeah. horror comic strip um so you know i think we get this impression of a guy that is withholding but he just doesn't want publicity that's i think that's all it is he doesn't yep. he's not somebody that that craves that limelight and he truly wants his comics to be his legacy, and they will be. Uh, Absolutely. Regardless of anything, his comics uh, today stand as a tremendous body of work and tremendous amount of accomplishment. And uh, we'll get into a little bit of just the work stuff right here. Um, After graduating high school, he worked steadily through the late 40s and 1950s for Atlas, Harvey Comics, and Charlton. At one time, he was essentially the only writer and artist on Charlton's horror comic, The Thing. Uh, this would begin a lifelong association with Charlton that we'll get into a little bit more, but this would kind of be his uh, home that he could always go back to. Um, fast forwarding quite a bit, in the 1960s, he co-created Spider-Man, Doctor Strange for Marvel. Never heard of him. No, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, might, they might be starting to pick up steam now. Um, he departed Marvel acrimoniously in 66. He had uh, problems with Stan Lee and his treatment there. Began working for Charlton under Dick Giordano right then. He was the, we did talk about that also during Charlton. That was during the uh, superheroes revival. Action heroes, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ditko worked on Blue Beetle and Captain Adam, which was a character he actually had co-created in 1960, among others at that time. He co-created The Question, who looks an awful lot like the fella in the next sentence, which was uh, Mr. A., he contributed his first Mr. A story to Wally Wood's independently produced magazine, Witsend, number three in 1967. Something else we also talked about in the second episode of Underground Comics. Yes. Um, now, this was the ultimate manifestation of his objectivist philosophy. And just in brief, objectivism is a system of philosophy created by Ayn Rand that, in a severely reduced explanation, like I'm saying, says that there's an objective reality that can be discerned from our perception through logic and reason. So it's it, what it's saying is that we, there's a world that we see and that's that we perceive, but there is an actual world underneath it that can get, that we can discern if we apply uh, math logic. and logic yeah. to it. Uh, 
this is this is what Steve Ditko believed and believes. Uh, the story, Mr. A is incorruptible newspaper reporter Rex Grain. He puts on a metal mask and metal gloves, and he becomes a crime fighter. Uh, also, his suit and fedora turn white. Usually, uh, they go from like a gray to a white. We don't know how that happened, but uh, it worked out. Now, Mr. A believes that A is A. There is black and white, good and evil. No other interpretations necessary. But in what may have been the most revolutionary thing for a comic at the time, Mr. A kills his villains. Yep. Uh, not every time, but often, or or leaves them to die. Or lets them die. Yeah. Um, that was very uncommon, and as a matter of fact, went directly against the comics code. Yeah, that's uh, uncommon the, today, much less. Back it then. is, although less uncommon. Oh, you know, <laughs> you you, you, you might you might live, but you might not have use of your legs anymore. That's the kind of sure. ending you might get. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's not something you expect from a protagonist. Uh, but this was in you know Wallywood's personal. Fanzine, more or less, or comic zine, so that was no big problem. Uh, he began working for DC around 1968 and co-created Hawk and Dove and The Creeper. Kept working, for, kept working for Charlton through the 1970s, came back to DC in 75, and co-created Shade the Changing Man. Uh, more germane to this podcast and this episode, however, ever since getting published in Wit's End, he took a liking to that and the ability to stretch himself creatively and tell a story he really wanted to tell. Uh, without any interference from the publishers or the comics code. Through the 80s and 90s, he worked for Marvel, co-creating Squirrel Girl. Uh, weird and little, Speedball. And Speedball, just a weird weird little nod at the time. Uh, and he also worked at DC, and uh, he's had stints with Archie Comics, Pacific and Dark Horse, among many other publishers. He had, did not starve for work. Yeah, he, he could write his own ticket. He could go where, even today, he could go anywhere he decided he wanted to go. For sure. Um, now, in 1998, he retired He retired from mainstream comics and concentrated on publishing independently. Uh, he was helped by a longtime collaborator and one-time Charlton editor, Robin Snyder, who seemed to handle the business end of things. Uh, probably was the more public <laughs> face of his uh, production. Definitely, well. yeah. Um, in that time, uh, they have produced an incredible number of four-color comics, black-and-white zine-style comics, uh, collected editions, and reprints of Ditko's earlier work. And we got a, at least a partial list here. Yeah. We scratched the surface a little bit. All of these that we're going to list are at least 32 pages. We got number 25 from uh, 2016. Out of This World, number 20, 2016. Tales of the Mysterious Traveler, number 19, from 2016. Mr. A, number 18, from 1960, uh, from 2016. Uh, number 24, which is, is that just that A, Ditko? Yes. Number, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, uh, and, and those usually contain, all of these also contain at least some new work. Yeah. Some of them are mm -hmm. sort of compilations, but often they're compilations of previous Ditko comics. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's, it's sort of creating his own line here of Ditko world. Yeah, and also he, he put some commentary in there too, which is uh, perhaps the most interesting. Um, I, I never and... noticed any commentary, Chris. You think there's a <laughs> is there, there's a message in those comics? I didn't there think there might be. There hmm, might be. I, I know there was a picture a picture of Spider Man's costume, and he says, "Who created this?" Yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, that... <laughs> I didn't. Ta I didn't take that as anything. Yeah, that would seem normal yeah, that to was, me. I think that was a uh, that was fictional and uh, entertainment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, we had twenty. What the? It's uh, two out, three out. <laughs> two out, three out. So this is kind of taking the place at number twenty-three. That was uh, yeah. Uh, that was twenty fifteen. Also in twenty fifteen, Out of This World seventeen, number twenty-two, Tales of the Mysterious Traveler sixteen, 
And then we have uh, in 2014, we have number two, Owl One, so number 21. Uh, Mr. A, number 15, number 20. And number nine, Teen. You know, number nine with the Very clever, after yep. It. it was. Uh, in 2013, just one, we have eight. It's, it's A-T-E. T-E-A-N, so 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another 32-pager in uh, 2013. Uh, 2012, number 17 and number 16. Uh, no, 2011, we have 8 Ditko, number uh, 15. 8 Ditko, number 14. Act 8, Act 7, 7. Uh, Act 6. Um, in 2010, we have Ditko 5, 5 Act. <laughs> the, uh, the cover series. Act 4. 8 Ditko, Act 3. A Ditko Act 2. Uh, 2009, Ditko Presents. Ditko Once More. Oh no, not again, Ditko. <laughs> <laughs> in 2008, we have Ditko Continued, Ditko Etc., The Avenging Mind. And then if we go back to 20, 2002, we have Avenging World. Uh, and before this, a bunch of books collecting Ditko's old work uh, with some new art peppered in. Yeah. Um, a lot of these books and more information can be found at ditko.blogspot.com. Which is pretty amazing to consider. Yeah, that, it's um, it's a blog spot. He's got the Chris is an Infinite Earths thing going, you know. But he he's does. but he's freaking he's, Steve Ditko. Like, he's, come on. <laughs> yeah, he's not just some schlub. He's this guy could this guy could have a full on web. You know, it's funny because some of these artists today they don't have you know three comics to the name and they got to you know they're selling they their Patreon. prints. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ditko's like, yeah, set up a blog spot for me. That's yeah. Fine. What's free? <laughs> But uh, these books are still. Um, I use. Uh, I, we're not getting. Uh, we're not getting subsidized by them. But we. Use, I use discount comic book services. I use DCBS every mm-hmm. month for my comics, and every month they have these Ditko books in there. Oh yeah. So you know these things are always around. They're always they're easy to come by, and uh, you know I'm, I I can't really speak for the quality of all of them, but I mean there is some very interesting comics in here. It it's very interesting is the. Great way to put it. Uh, not yeah. all of it is great. Some of it is great, though, and uh, sure, you definitely see that that Ditko's that Ditko line and that cleanness of of expression that mm-hmm. I think that he's so best known for. I mean, now it looks like he's not even penciling; he's just going a lot of times straight, straight ink to paper, yep. and it looks great. You know what I mean? He, I think this is someone that's been drawing comics for you know sixty mm-hmm. years or whatever, that's seventy years now. So that's more than probably. most people have been on the planet. So yeah, it's probably why he's pretty good at it, but. Uh, uh, I also like, you know, going through these titles, you see this is a guy with a sense of humor. Uh, sure. And I think he gets painted as kind of a humorless person. Very and black or white. Yeah. It's not true, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that's that's true. I think his, he's got his philosophy, but he sounds like he's, you know, he's having a good time. He, people that do comics, they usually aren't, uh, you know, very rigid in there. Yeah. Personalities, but uh, anyway, and also in my in my local comic shop, which also don't subsidize us, but that's JHU on Thirty Second Street in Manhattan. <laughs> they have a rack of all Ditko stuff, which includes nice. uh, you know recent reprints by Yo Books or his creepy reprints when he did work for Warren Publishing, but also all, like a ton of his comics. And that's where I've picked up a couple just to get, take a look at them and see what they're about. Yeah. Uh, if you're interested, check it out. Folks. Definitely a novelty. Yeah. Um. Now, but. All that, all that stuff, you know. Ditko is is somewhat underground, although as we point out, it is distributed in the mainstream comic shops. And you know, the 
Vertigo and Epic. It's sort of we're sort of playing with the line here of what's underground, but we're about to get a lot closer to it. Talking about the back of the comic shop and going through the curtain. Some of your comic shops may not have this area, and that means that you probably live in a nice neighborhood, but (laughs) (laughs) others do. Uh, And back there is where you find the dirty books. There have been some classics over the years we're going to talk about. Uh, couldn't Probably couldn't cover all of them and not sure that I really want to, but we will pay service to a few of them. Uh, Cherry Pop-Tart. This was first published in 1982, created by Larry Welts and published via Last Gasp. Uh, Larry Welts was born in 1948. He was an early contributor to the underground comics movement. Uh, his work was regularly published in Yellow Dog. That was that Berkeley-based uh, underground comics newspaper. That also covered bands and stuff. We talked about that uh, in the second issue, a uh, second episode, a little bit. Um, Last Gasp is an underground comics publisher and distributor based out of San Francisco. Now, due to threats of litigation from Kellogg's uh, Cherry, from Kellogg's who does Pop Tarts, uh, poor Cherry lost her Pop Tart last name somewhere in the I don't know seventh issue, sixth issue, uh, but it was changed to Pop Star. But the title of the comic just became Cherry. Drawn very much in the style of an Archie comic, in fact, precisely like an Archie comic, but not as tight as a DeFalco. Um, Between 1982 and 2000, 22 issues have been released, later issues via Kitchen Sink Press, and finally through Welt's own Cherry Comics brand. This has had a few spinoffs, including Cherry's Jubilee and Cherry Deluxe, the latter featured a story written by Neil Gaiman. And again, I want to tell you folks, these are pornographic comics, okay? Uh, This is not... You know, lightly dirty comics. This is more than yeah. just boobs. Yeah, this isn't softcore. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, the full Monty. Black and white, you know, everything. Uh, Omaha the Cat Dancer is another title. Mm-hmm. This, this was erotic anthropomorphic furry fun by Kate Worley and Reed Waller. Omaha first appeared in, a va- in fanzine Vooty and was inspired by Crumb's Fritz the Cat. The first story of Omaha's was featured in Bizarre Sex Number no. 9 by, in 1981 from Kitten Sink Press. It also run in Dope Comics and Bizarre Sex series. Uh, Omaha was featured in a parody hostess ad in issue 5 of Charlton Comics E-Man in 1983. Hotz's Twonkies. <laughs> uh, Reed Waller was born August 3rd, 1949. He was a musician and cartoonist. And Kate Worley, March 16, 1958. Passed away June 6, 2004. Uh, joined Waller in the midst of issue number two due to his crippling writer's block. It was tough to get these kind of high-quality stories out, I'm sure. Uh, the pair started working had a romantic relationship. They suffered a car accident together and sometime later had a contentious split taking Omaha off the table for quite some time. Waller was diagnosed with colon cancer in 91 and recovered. Worley was diagnosed with another form of cancer in 2002 and was not so lucky. The pair reconciled to put together a few more issues in the early mid-2000s. Waller continued with Worley's notes, working alongside his, her widower and kitchen sink alum, James Vance. And since 2006, has appeared in Sizzle magazine from Terry Nanter's NBM Publishing. Now, in the comic, uh, sex was used explicitly so, but it was always integrated into the stories, and it was not used for shock value, although it could be argued that... Uh, Cats, anthropomorphic cats having sex is sort of shocking in and of itself. Um, Maybe. But it was used in as a uh, you know plot device. Now, Omaha is a stripper at the Kitty Corner Club who gets her big break when she becomes the centerfold for Ahem Pet Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets mobby and on the runny pretty quick. 
Uh, now, there was some controversy in 1988. Diamond, Diamond distributors refused to distribute the book to retailers, which today would be you would get no distribution, but then there yeah. were other options. Uh, also in 1998, a comic shop in Chicago called Friendly Franks was fined $750 for carrying Omaha the Cat Dancer along with other obscene books. This was one of the formative events that led to the creation of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. In 1989, a comics bindery that refused to take part in the creation of an Omaha collection. And in 1990, issues were seized in New Zealand on the grounds that they were indecent. However, the Obscene Publications Tribunal, uh, they disagreed. <laughs> I, I would have to assume they exist. Yes. <laughs> Uh, in 1990, the Toronto PD uh, seized issues of this book, claiming it featured bestiality. Although it doesn't, you know, when it's two of the same animal. Anyway, um, also going on in Toronto in 1990, nothing at all. Yes. They, had, but despite all this this controversy, uh, they have had some awards. The, they were nominated in 1989 for the Best Continuing Series Eisner Award, uh, and same year for. Black Best Black and White series, and also for Best Writer and Artist. And in 1991, they won the Eisner Awards for Best Black and White series and for Best Writer. Crazy. Yeah. Now, uh, underground comics are not just limited to the West. We're going to talk about some uh, East comics here. We're going to talk about some manga and some doujinshi. Uh, we first got Iro Gekiga, which is erotic dramas. Kind of, I guess they could be compared to like the Harlequin gnome romance novels, with uh, you know Fabio on the cover. Yeah. Kind of a uh, you know catered towards. Uh, I think they were like the Jose comics, which were they were kind of for the adult women. Okay. Um, also got hentai. Uh, this is the more explicit, hardcore type stuff. Often, but not always, conflated with a tentacle pornography. <laughs> um, now, uh, per Iro uh, Mangaka, a guy named uh, Toshio Media, or Maeda, uh, tentacles were used to circumvent Japanese censorship laws, which prohibit the depiction of male genitalia. Everything else is fair game, just not a penis. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this goes back even further. Uh, there was a Japanese woodblock print from 1814 called uh, Takoto Ama, which is uh, the dream of the fisherman's wife, which features a woman having a special time with an octopus. Now, don't don't, don't it, they have that fertility festival in Japan, though, where they parade around with giant penises? Yeah, there's a whole park that's statues of penises. But that, I guess <laughs> that statues are okay. I guess that's the drawings art, right? is no good. Yeah. <laughs> but what is art? Um, <laughs> we're gonna go into a, a bit of a ugh, portion of <laughs> manga here. This is a, and I'm not judging. This is a lolicon. It's a portmanteau of Lolita and Complex. The word Lolita is in reference to Vladimir Nebikov's 1955 novel of the same name, and not former Joey Buttafuoco squeeze Amy Fisher. <laughs> uh, a middle-aged man becomes sexually obsessed with a 12-year-old girl. And, and Lolita, uh, uh, Lolita's become kind of shorthand for that for May, young girl, May December, yeah, yeah an old guy, young girl romance. Now, uh, Lolita Complex, it comes from a book from the same of the same name, written by a fellow by the name of Russell Trainer in 1965, which is essentially a pseudo psychological take on Nabokov's novel. Uh, Trainer had no clinical or psychological background, so a lot of the context has been debunked or just ignored. Um, now, the book itself, however, appears to have struck a chord when it was translated into Japanese under the title Lolicon. Mm. Uh, it focuses on an attraction to young slash prepubescent girls. Uh, there's a term called ero kawaii, which means erotic and cute. 
Um, we have a fellow by the name of Hideo Izuma. He was born February 6, 1950 in Urohoro, Hokkaido, Japan. He is considered the father of Lolicon. Uh, he published a Lolicon manga, White Cybele, and worked for the magazine Shoujo Alice, which is which is a shoujo for young girl. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard Kawaii before. Yeah. Never heard Iro Kawaii, I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here's something that sounds totally underground, as far as I'm concerned, is Dojunshi, Absolutely. which are fan-made comics. They can be looked at as the Japanese equivalent to Western underground comics. And the concept of Dojunshi, which at this point basically means self-published work, comes from the Meiji period of Japan. A social criticism journal called Meiroku Zashi is often credited with spreading the concept from 1874. The first magazine to actually publish Dojunshi novels was Garuka Bunko in 1885. Uh, this increased publication occurred almost a century later due to advances in photocopying technology. That would have been right around the 1970s when Xerox blew up, I guess. This is uh, also when Dojunshi, Dojunshi came to be more about manga. Uh, Comicet, which is Comic Market, right? Yeah. Uh, Dojunshi Convention founded in 1975. It's currently held twice a year, and gamers are in attendance in excess of half a million people. Uh, Garner said, yeah, that's amazing. That that blows Mm -hmm. out any Comic-Con we have here in America, folks. And this is for fan-made comics. It's it's truly unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, this is is like a real movement as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, And it's been going on for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. During the 1980s, Dojunshi shifted from works featuring original concepts and characters to something akin to fan fiction. Comic manga shops in J- Japan started stocking Dojunshi on their shelves around early 1991. Uh, gotta watch out for that Lolicon, though. We got dis- decency laws here, folks. Three managers were arrested during the early 1990s for carrying such things. Due to Dojunshi not having to adhere to the restrictions that legitimate publishing houses have to follow, they are free to be as sexually sexually explicit as they want, and there certainly is a market for such thing, but only in Japan, right, Chris? <laughs> only in Japan. Yeah, only, no one knows it here. That's known as H Dojunshi, right? Yep. Yeah, like hentai Doju- Dojunshi. Yeah, hentai. Uh, recent studies show that Dojunshi eats up almost 15% of Japanese otaku expenditure dollars in keeping up with their hobby. In 2007. 27.73 billion yen was spent on dojunshi. So uh, this is a good place for you to go if you're an independent writer. Yes, yeah, so uh, it's around $240 million U.S. Yeah, which, which is uh, maybe a less impressive number, but still quite impressive. For one year, that's a, big amazing. Time, big time, yeah. Now, before we go on, uh, an otaku is basically a... I, I hate the term geek culture because I think it's one of the lamest things ever. But uh, otaku is kind of the Eastern equivalent to yeah. that. It's like manga fandom, right? And, and other yeah, or anime fandom, things, yeah. video games. Yeah. Now, um, you got to remember that these are often in direct conflict with Japanese copyright laws. However, due to the amount of money that they bring in, the manga industry actually fears that they would collapse if they were to prosecute. Wow. Um, there were uh, two famous cases of litigation, one in 1999. It was a Nintendo over a uh, erotic Pokemon manga <laughs> because, uh, A, Nintendo sues over everything, and two, uh, um, <laughs> 
uh, in 2006, there was a Doraemon final chapter. Now, Doraemon is one of the more iconic manga characters. He uh, ran from a, it's a it's a cat. Uh, <laughs> ran from 1969 to 1996 and concluded without like a definitive ending because uh, the mangaka uh, Fujiko Fuyo uh, passed away, got very sick and passed away. Um, now, uh, you know, tying this in with our talk of the Western uh, underground comics here, many famous uh, mangaka or creators got their start in dojinshi. Uh, fellows, uh, people like uh, Yoshitoshi Abe, who's uh, wound up becoming the character designer for an anime I enjoyed when I was younger called Serial Experiments Lane. That was in 1998. Uh, Ken Akimatsu, who did uh, Lavina. And uh, actually, still does doujinshi from time to time. Wow! Even after uh, he's gone mainstream, right? Yeah, he's even, the and, Steve, I mean, the Steve Ditko the, of the of Japan. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, so he did a uh, he did a manga called Negima, which was translated, or it was a uh, it was localized, I should say, because I don't think it was translated, but it was localized by Peter David and his daughter. Huh. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't think he knows Japanese, but I think he was able to bring it into an American yeah. uh, point of view. Uh, one of my favorites, Rumiko Takahashi, who's responsible for Ranma One Half and Inuyasha, as well as one of my favorite mangas of all time, Maisanai Koku, uh, was she got her start in Dojinshi. Uh, Kazuhiko Keito, also known as Monkey Punch, who did uh, Lupin the Third, and uh, many, many more. It, it really, when you think about it, it is kind of like the underground movement of the East. Yeah, it seems tremendous, you know, and and for the publishers and, <laughs> and for the publishers to be worried about it enough, you know that. That for it to go away would be would impact their business. I think yep. that's uh, it, you just don't ever see that kind of thing happen in the West. It's almost as if no. the uh, the the big publishers hold all the cards or something. But I don't know about that or anything about that. So <laughs> uh, I won't pontificate. But Chris and I are going to take a little break right here. Yeah, uh, going to play something swell for you that I'm sure will be totally relevant to this episode. And when Precisely. we get when we get back, we will wrap up uh, pretty much. The last vestiges or, or what remains of underground comics and that aesthetic in the Western world today. So how long have you been drawing comic books? So I was about seven years old, little kid. What did your parents think about it? They hate They hate Oh, yeah. After I, I got a job and they saw that you can make a living out of third day, you'll hear no complaints anymore. And you created X-Force? Mm -hmm. So what is this drawing on? This is the Spike Man. And what's this right here? This is the camera on top of your head that will record the wrongdoings of others. So, Rob, have you had any formal art training? No. Just uh, a lot of imagination, I think. Wait till so I say it and then look down, or just open it and say it. Fly button. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to uh, Weird Comics History. We're talking about underground comics. I just wanted to do the first in-episode correction to something I said before, talking about Cherry Pop-Tart. I said that it, uh, it was, you know, very similar to Archie Comics art, and I said it was like a, uh, I think I said a looser Tom DeFalco. I meant... Mm. A looser Dan DiCarlo. He was the yes. he is the guy that we associate with with the typical Archie art up until very recently when he looks nothing like uh, he's looked for <laughs> decades. For but, years, yes. Um, but anyway, I made a mistake. Uh, that's my mistake, and I meant Dan DiCarlo. But let's go on with underground comics. Yes, and, and uh, Tom DeFalco did he did finish up the uh, that yes. volume of Archie, he did write think, it, so. but yeah, never never drew it, so no image relation can be made with no. anything he did. <laughs> Nebulous at best. Um, now we're we're gonna go into uh, what a lot of people consider the uh, the progression of underground comics. This is a uh, mini comics and ash cans. 
Uh, now, the first mini comics were those Tijuana Bibles that we've covered extensively throughout the entire Underground series, pretty much, especially yeah. uh, during the first episode. Uh, now, the first modern mini comics came out of uh, San Francisco's underground comic scene. Uh, Gary Allington of the San Francisco Comic Book Company published several mini-comics between 1968 and 1976, which included works from such artists as Art Spiegelman and uh, Bill Griffith. Um, you know, we got to give a nod to the uh, religious tracts of uh, the recently departed Jack Chick. That's right. Who, uh, th- which are their miniature comics uh, in a similar format to Tijuana Bibles, but uh, not exactly. Well, it's not the uh, you know just the piece of typing paper folded in half. No, it, it is it is a miniature comic in its true sense, but not not really a mini comic. <laughs> yes, I I saw a lot of those when I worked for the government. We got a lot of those mailed to us. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yes, uh, it was it was very interesting. Um, everybody wanted to take them home, but we had to destroy them there. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, in uh, 1968, Carl Gafford created uh, Blue Plaque Publications, which was the first mini-comic co-op. It's a cooperative of uh, mini-comic creators that traded and promoted small press comics and fanzines. Uh, jumping ahead 12 years, 1980. Matt, are we saying Feasel? Feisel? I always said Feasel. Feasel, I think that works too. Matt Feasel produced Cynical Man. Uh, this was a mini comic about a very cynical stick figure. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, from this point on, mini comics generally referred to self produced and copied pages, folded, trimmed sometimes, and stapled <laughs> at home at a, or at a local university's art studio. Uh, Many, many comics in the 1980s were produced by artists influenced by the underground comic scene who were unable to get work published in underground and alternative publications at the time. Uh, Michael Dower's Starhead Comics, with an X, published many, many comics throughout the latter half of the 1980s before the company moved to traditional comic book printing and distribution. Uh, At this time, I also want to give a shout-out to the miniature four-color comics, some of them drawn by Jack Kirby, that were included in the Superpowers toys in 1983, the Kenner toys. (laughs) Uh, these were little DC comics that feature all the DC comics characters, but again, not really what we're talking about here. Just again, another small comic book. Um, I also got a uh, Batman vs Superman mini comic and a box of Cheerios a couple months well, ago. Well, so they're still they're still they're still out there, folks. But but again, these are uh, these are the not mainstream. These are the big boys. <laughs> Um, John Porcelino's King Cat Comics, first published in May 1989 and still is published, is among the best-known and longest-running mini-comics titles. These are now often included with those drawn in quarterly anthologies they come out with best, like, Mm -hmm. best comics of the year. This will often be kind of slipped in under the jacket, which is a strange thing to do. Uh, In the 1990s, before the widespread adoption of the World Wide Web, Mini-comics became a popular form of self-distribution for alternative cartoonists aided by such publications as Fact Sheet 5, comic book series like Jessica Abel's Art Babe, Julie Doucet's Dirty Plot, which I read that one, and Adrian Tomin's Optic Nerve all started out as self-published mini-comics before being picked up by legitimate publishers. In 2003, cartoonists Andy Hartzell and Jesse Recklaw co-founded Global Hobo Distro, a distributor dedicated to handmade and hard-to-find comics that is partnered with Last Gasp. Still, most of these self-produced comics are hand-delivered to comic shops. As a result, some of the more remote retailers might not have access to a lot of them. Uh, or it might just be that the remote retailers have access to them. It's sometimes that is the case. Uh, you know, yeah, it's 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 hard to say why. You know, Chris was saying where he is. There, there is or was a big mini comic scene. And yeah. uh, there's nothing really nearby to 
explain that, except I guess people just want to do their own thing or, you know, they get in where you fit in kind of attitude. Sure. Um, but I've definitely been to plenty of, I'd say most stores I've been to around the country don't have these. Um, no. But usually in the big cities, uh, someone will be carrying them or, you know, someone's paying attention to them. Uh, since 1997, there has been an Ignatz Award for Best Mini Comic at the Small Press Expo every year. Uh, now, ash cans, this sort of now, uh, we're stepping away from the more underground side, but it, it's still pretty relevant. Uh, the word ash can is a synonym for any type of waste receptacle whose contents are to be incinerated. Uh, the implication for comics, though, is that the printed material will go straight from the printer to the trash. And the reason for that is because it's a term that originated in the golden age of comics. It was meant to describe a publication that was made solely for legal purposes, like usually copyright, uh, and it was never intended to be seen. They would publish two copies of each copyrighted ash can of, of, of each work, uh, one for the Library of Congress for their files for the copyright, and then one for the publisher's records. Um, fewer than five copies exist for most of these old Golden Age publications. Today, ash cans could be more accurately described as mini or digest comics. Uh, they frequently contain unlettered stories and unfinished art. Their purpose is simply to justify the publisher's claim to a title, thereby pre preventing a competitor from publishing the same title or a similar one. They're just easier to crank out fast, you know. Yeah. Uh, ash cans are also produced to demonstrate the, the publications uh, to potential advertisers. The best-known ash can race is, flash, is for Flash Comics number one. This is in the Golden Age again. Uh, this was by Fawcett Comics who introduced Captain Thunder, who was later Captain Marvel. Uh, meanwhile, competitor All-American Comics had already published a Flash Comics title and created a character called T Captain Thunder. So the Flash Comics Ashcan failed to claim those trademarks for the company. It came out too late, but it did establish a publication date for copyright purposes. In modern comics, Ashcan editions, they may refer to, to promotional comics and in the independent self-publishing market. Uh, the term is sometimes synonymous with mini-comics or special variants. Uh, in my mind, they're different. Uh, and as stupid as it is, ash cans, to me, are, are more often rectangular. Uh, whereas okay. mini-comics are often square, right? Or they're, they're much smaller. They're folded typing paper. Yeah, and they're also, they're, yeah, they're, they're Xerox paper folded, whereas a mini, a yeah. mini a, an ash can often is printed in some fashion. looks like offset printing. Mm. Um... Being rare, they become coveted, and they have their own collector's niche, these ash cans. Ash can is also sometimes applied to the comics that were rejected by publishers due to errors. And so these comics become highly coveted, although that's not at all what we mean right here. No. Uh, sort of a misnomer to call them underground, because as we're talking about, um, you know, mainstream publishers use them all the time. Uh, many independent publishers use them to promote new series, but, uh, you know, where else are we going to talk about this stuff, folks? Uh, it seemed like it fit here. Yeah, the only, the, the, when I first was introduced to the term was uh, when Marvel was launching uh, Generation X mm -hmm. back in, uh, I want to say, like, 94, because uh, it, was, uh, it was during a time where we had something called Wizard Magazine, and it became a collector's item. And when you'd look at the Generation X uh, section of the price guide, it would list the ash can and give a value for it. Wow. So uh, that's when I first became familiar with the term. But you never would have put it together with a Golden Age actually burning <laughs> burning the paper type of uh, yeah. name nomenclature. But, uh, but it was just a – to me, it was just a promotional uh, piece. 
it, I think I saw the most of them myself in the late 80s, early 90s, when there was that huge black and white comics explosion. Mm-hmm. And I would say that a comic wasn't mentioned without an ash can. In fact, many of those comics never had a comic. They just yeah. had the ash can. Just had the ash can. Uh, the pitch. O- often it was a way for these guys to go to the convention and sell the same thing twice. You could have the ash can of, it, of issue number one, mm-hmm. and you could buy issue number one in regular size. So, uh, But there were so, so many of them. It was unbelievable. And I bet a lot of them are especially rare because they didn't have a comic that followed. They, sure. just, they just got the promotion part before the money ran out or the interest waned or whatever. So, uh, and, and I don't see them as often now, but I, I bet if I was more plugged into that world, I would probably be more knowledgeable about it. Certainly, certainly. Um, now, also, uh, continuing with the progression here, we have webcomics. Now, webcomic is a comic that is, believe it or not, published on the Internet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, due to the, uh, you know, there there really are no constraints with the Internet now. So these could be any size, any length. They could be color, not color. They could be Fumetti or Western Fumetti. They could yep. be anything, uh, any subject, basically, um, because there really is no traditional print rules for it. Mm. Um, now, the first online comic was uh, Eric Milliken's Witches and Stitches, which was an unauthorized Wizard of Oz parody comic. Now, this was published on CompuServe in 1985. Mm. There, 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 was, there was a form of internet back then. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't very so, pretty, as you know, but it was there. No, no, it was, it was rather homely, uh, homely <laughs> interface, but uh, it was there. Um, now, it was followed by uh, The Fox, T-H-E Fox, a furry comic strip by Joe Ekatis. How are we saying that here? Ekatis. Ekatis. Mm. And that was published on CompuServe and Quantum, Le- Quantum Leap. Quantum Link <laughs> in 1986. Uh, Hans Bjorn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I saved all the good ones for you here. You did, you did. I thought I, I thought I tripped you up with the Japanese. Uh, Hans Bjordahl's col- college-themed comic strip. Where the Buffalo Rome was published on FTP and Usenet in 1991. Usenet is a fun subject that I hope we get to sometime Absolutely, soon. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, David Fawley's uh, single-panel gag cartoon, Dr. Fun, was published on the web in September 1993. Uh, in August of 2000, Scott McCloud published a book called Reinventing Comics, half of which consisted of a treatise on webcomics uh, and... Yeah, a little bit controversial, but uh, McLeod is one of the first advocates of digital comics and uh, still remains an influential figure in the webcomics and regular comics fields. Mm-hmm. Um, his theories have sometimes led to debates about where webcomics web should go and what precisely they, they are, really. Uh, to me, uh, McLeod is the guy who sees a lot of dark clouds in the sky and says, I think it's going to rain soon. Yeah, uh, it may, <laughs> may be a little negative, but... Uh... <laughs> Uh, you know, I, you, you got to say, uh, right here in 2000, the other thing that's happening is this was still, the dot-com bubble was still happening. Sure, and, sure. And the possibilities of what the internet could be, that, you know, there was a time, especially in the late you 90s. You get rich with a GeoCities page. Uh, pe- pe- people thought money was was going to come cranking out of that disk drive. They were they thought it was the computer was your home ATM, <laughs> and ATM. you just had to, you know, get something up there, and money would come pouring out. I think things are a lot more tempered now. Uh, as far as you know, what's lucrative, and and I'll say most, the vast majority of people doing web co- web comics make nothing, and you sure. know, lose a little bit of money on the deal, but they do it because that's one way to get your comic Fashion. out there, and they yeah they en- they enjoy it. Uh, so I I can kind of forgive McLeod at this time mm. thinking that way, you know what I mean? Like oh wow, yeah. the internet is into immediate money, but 
he is definitely a little bit of gloom and doom, a little bit, you know, mm. the everything is on the verge of collapse unless we change every aspect yes. of it, you know. Now, uh, in 2001, the subscription webcomic site called Cool Beans World was launched after a high-profile publicity campaign, including extensive uh, print advertising. It won Internet Magazine's Site of the Month Award in October 20, uh, 2001. Now, the uh, contributors included, among others, uh, UK-based comic book creators Pat Mills, Simon Bisley, John Bolton, and Kevin O'Neill, and uh, the author uh, Clive Barker. Uh, serialized content included Scarlet Traces and Martial Law. Uh, in March 2001, uh, Shannon Denton and Patrick Coyle launched Comic Works with a K, with three Ks actually, uh, .com, which served uh, free strips from comics and animation professionals. The site launched with nine titles, including Steve Conley's Astounding Space Thrills, Jason Cruz's The World of Quest, and Bernie Wrightson's The Nightmare Expeditions. Some pretty good uh, names there. That's a yeah. quite a quite a murderer's row there. Yeah. yeah. Um, now on March second, twenty oh good two thousand two. I'm so used to saying the twenty teens now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Joey Manley founded Modern Tales, offering subscription based web comics. Uh, the Modern Tales spinoff serializer followed in October two thousand two, and then came uh, Girlomatic and Graphic Smash in March and September of two thousand three, respectively. Uh, by 2005, webcomics hosting had become a business in its own right, with sites such as uh, the Rampage Networks and Webcomics Nation. Yeah, uh, and you know, those comic sites in 2001 and 2, uh, offering kind of brokering comics, that was all sort of part of this dot-com bubble, too. Uh, yeah. Everybody wanted to know what their angle could be, and that was just one attempt to do it. I don't believe sure. either of those sites are around. They might be. I should have should have checked that, but... Uh, there are other plenty of other comic sites out sure. there today. I mean, like, there's even uh, what is that one uh, video game website? That Penny Arcade. Right, Penny They've Arcade. They've been doing web comics forever, and even have a have a convention uh, for their site now, and have for a while. Yeah, they're they that's uh. They do the packs or whatever. There, it's 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 uh, they have they had a couple of comics. I remember they did one about uh, video games. That I did yeah. a lot, kind of a comedy, and they do one about comics too. That's called Penny Arcade, right? It's a, it's it's Penny Arcade. I think it's a I think it's still about video games, but it's uh yeah you know I haven't read it in a hundred years, so maybe <laughs> who knows? Yeah, they 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 got comics is the point. They do. Um, DC Comics launched its own web comic in print. Of course, <laughs> the mainstream got to get it on the act once they see that money. Once they see that you know four cents is leaking out the back door, they got to try to recoup <laughs> that. Uh, the imprint was called Zuda Comics. This was October two thousand seven. Site featured user submitted comics in a competition for a professional contract to produce web comics. In July 2010, it was announced that DC was closing down Zuda. And a hell of a run. Yeah, wow, what a time. Uh, and the names, the names that leap to mind. But uh, some web comics, <laughs> such as Helen, Sweetheart of the Internet, Macanudo, Van Von Hunter, and Diesel Sweeties, have been syndicated and published in daily newspapers' comics pages. Others, such as the Perry Bible Fellowship and Partially Clips, have been published in similar alternative newspapers, or printed in magazines such as The Order of the Stick and Dragon Magazine and Get Your War On and Rolling Stone. And I know Perry Bible Fellowship had a collection come out because I, I got it at one time. So mm. uh, they, these guys do make the transition. Several cartoonists like Phil and Kaja Foglio of Girl Genius have stopped publishing traditional comic books and instead serialized their content as a webcomic to reach a larger audience. Often the webcomic is later published in the form of trade paperback collections. I know girl geniuses, I see it all the time. And uh, let's just throw a nod to Dinosaur Comics, a very popular webcomic. 
by Ryan North, who now writes The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and that Choose Your Own Shakespeare, Choose Your Own Adventure Shakespeare thing that I don't know a ton about. I don't know. Do you, do you know about this at all? Not a clue. No, that's uh, pretty much so. We're in the same boat. He wrote a couple of books <laughs> that seem to be Shakespeare stories, but you can choose how they go in some fashion, but I'm, I don't know about them. Sounds wildly entertaining. Um, <laughs> Is that sarcasm, Chris? Hold on a second. Never, never, never. Um, now we come full circle. Mm-hmm. We started off this episode asking, "What is an underground comic? What is an underground comic today?" Mm. Which is still a very good question, even after <laughs> all this knowledge. Uh, so, if you guys got any ideas, we are very, very open to hearing them. Yeah. Um, now, barring hand-distributed uh, mini comics, there hasn't really been anything approaching the true underground comic scene since those uh, those de- indecently didn't up those decency laws in 1974. Mm-hmm. Uh, independent artists and cartoonists uh, looking to work outside the established structure have still found their venues, as we've detailed uh, throughout this episode. Now, still, many many comics and uh, web comics are little more than placeholders until the creators find mainstream work or lose interest or get a get a full time gig. I guess I don't know. Um, now, perhaps the term underground does not apply anymore. Uh, but if it's an aesthetic, then I'd uh, say that a comic whose existence is not depending on sales or critique might fit into the descriptor. Uh, maybe uh, a little bit of a broad way to look at it is anything non corporate. You know where you don't have stakeholders. You mm-hmm. you can't you can't be held up for distribution. You can't you don't have to worry about being thrown out of a store. You right. know, it's basically selling it out of the trunk of your car. Or publishing it on the web, but you know, yeah, with mm. with impu- total freedom and impunity. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're not worried about offending or breaking or anything. But uh we definitely would like to know your opinion about it. You know, sure. this this was a series. Uh, Chris and I have done a tremendous amount of work on this. It, uh, as always, like we say, it turned out to be more than we thought. But this is one that I wanted to do because uh, some of the earliest comics I ever saw were reprints of Zap comics and underground comics from the uh, '60s. This was stuff that my father had gotten, and I got my hands on it when I wasn't supposed to, and it really did. <laughs> it really it just showed me a new type of art and a new way of looking at the comics language uh so but you know as we as we went through these episodes and i found like yeah that the meaning sort of evaporates after 74 and yet there is still an aesthetic and it's hard to really describe uh it's hard to explain exactly what it is because you know cerebus is not an is not really an underground comic and yet it it you know you wouldn't put it next to it's like a missing link yeah sort it's sort of yeah it's something like let's say it's between you know, Zap Comics and X-Men. You know yeah. what I mean? It doesn't really fit next to X-Men. It's it's not really as crude as Zap Comics, but it's still, it's in there. So uh just wanted to talk about this side of comic books that I don't think gets a lot of, definitely gets less shine than the mainstream stuff for sure. sure. Uh And I think a lot of people, they don't really talk about it. They might find it as being cheaper, you know, uh, you know, just not to their liking, not full of action or whatever it is. So uh, it, it is got, a different aesthetic for sure. It just got more difficult as time went on, and now we're at a point now when there's de- none of these comics are underground at all, except for arguably the smallest of mini comics. I mean, you can't get any of these comics unless you have an internet connection or access to a comic shop. So, uh, anyway, we would love there was to that know. Other, that, there was that other side that we talked about. I'm not sure if we if it, if this conversation ever got on the air, but uh, we talked about how since every comic is now in a closed distribution system. Yeah, that the argument could be made that everything 
is underground you know in a sense it's 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 quite true yeah since you have to go to a special store to get your comics yeah. for the most part and you know uh, you know chris and i talk about all the time when you round up all the com everyone that buys comics in this country you talk what are you max out at like 100 grand 150 grand Maybe. tops that would that would be at the top level and we're talking people that buy sonic the hedgehog and you know uncle yep. scrooge and whatever else too or Certainly. anything with a saddle staple you know what i mean like that's that's i would lump them in and that's really a, a, a small number of people you know it's uh in the grand scheme of things so you really it's sort of comics in general are sort of an underground thing uh and and i've always seen them just by their very nature to be counterculture to be sort of like um it's sort of the commentary on mainstream society rather than being mainstream although that again is arguable more today with the it's movie franchises yeah. <laughs> and stuff but you know definitely at a time definitely in our youth even as popular as you know x-men was it still was like its own thing you know if it's mm -hmm. if you were an x-men fan you were in kind of slightly rarefied air in a country of 250 million people yeah. uh so uh that that's that's my thoughts on the matter but really what we want to know are your thoughts on the matter Certainly. and you can share them with us and we will talk about them on the air to some ex uh extent when we get a chance so we're at weird comics history at gmail.com uh, you can read Chris and my writing almost every week, uh, usually me and uh, Chris, if he's got a book, on weirdsciencedccomics.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I say every week, you should go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.blogspot.com. Did you capitalize that F so I would... I, I did not. It. Oh, I thought that must have been my misspelling. <laughs> I thought you were like, a, it's now Chris is on Infinite Earths. Infinite Earths. Uh, .blogspot.com. He reviews a new DC comic every day of the week, and it's always very illuminating. It's very funny. Uh, this week, actually, you just showed me you did Wildstorm. Yeah, since uh, DC is bringing Wildstorm back, I figured I'd uh, I'd start digging deep. I, th I think it counts, you know. They own all that stuff now, so that you might as well call that a DC comic. That's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really it was much much funnier and much more interesting than I would have given it credit <laughs> for because I I faded that whole line when it came out in the late '90s. I really <laughs> wanted nothing to do with it. So you got to check that out every day, folks. Don't forget, it's uh, great stuff. But I think finally, after. <laughs> months and months and four episodes. I think we're finally done with this topic of underground comics for now, Chris. Um, for now. For we now. may have more to say sometime. You have anything else for him? I think that'll do us. Well, until next time, I want everyone to keep it on the treadmill digitally. See ya. <laughs>